Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a close friend of mine and past guest, actually the very first guest that I ever interviewed on the Man Talk Show uh, by a gentleman named Mr. Philip McKernan. Now, Philip, I've known for quite a few years. He does some some absolutely, absolutely incredible work uh, in and around understanding clarity, understanding the intuition, living with purpose. Um, but one of the things that he does is he helps people find their one last talk. And their one last talk, the idea is that this is the talk that you would want to give uh, if you were about to die. And, you know, Philip really believes that we are all here uh, and, and, and we're all about what's, you know, what's really possible. And he really believes in pioneering life-changing experiences for people who are destined for more. And he's an incredible speaker, an inspirational speaker. He's an incredible storyteller, a writer, uh, a filmmaker, and he has helped and worked with entrepreneurs and business leaders all over the world, specifically those who are seeking clarity about their future, who want more for their life, who need to be able to move through roadblocks, uh, see the unseen. Uh, normally, those are the people that call upon Philip. So uh, Philip and I have have had some great conversations before. We're very much in alignment in terms of some of the things that that we talk about. Um, but today we're going to talk about a few a few different things. So we're going to dive into, you know, building a life of clarity, of authenticity. We're going to talk about understanding death and how we can not only understand death but start to, uh, I don't want to say leverage, but embrace it, face it, and embrace it in such such a way where it can help us live more rich and fulfilling lives. And talk about the impact of living your one last talk. So before I bring him on, just a quick reminder to leave us a rating and review. Uh, share this podcast with just one person goes a long way, especially if you found value in it. Uh, and for all the guys that are out there, check out the Man Talks community on Facebook. It's absolutely free. We've got thousands of men from around the world that are a part of that community. Uh, and don't forget to check out the Man Talks Alliance, which I personally lead. It's a great program uh, that we are kicking off actually this week. Um, and we've got an incredible group of men from around the world that have joined us. Uh, we're going to dive deep into purpose, into mindset, into relationships, and so, so, so much more. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Philip McKernan. Thanks for having me back. This is great. Yeah. So for, for everybody out there that's listening and doesn't know this, Philip was actually the very first guest that I ever had on the Man Talk show. And <laughs> my former my former partner and I literally drove out to North Vancouver when you were still living there and recorded we had no idea what we were doing, but we recorded in your living room. That's uh, right. I think it, actually at your kitchen table. Yeah, just uh, just it was like a living area and then a little area off that. And it was technically, I suppose, the kitchen table. We sat there and you had your little, uh, whatever the hell, a snowball mic or whatever the hell it's yeah, called. One of, one of these things. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what was there. And, uh, <laughs> I, that makes two or three of us. I didn't really know what I was doing because I suppose my work has moved on a lot since then. But that was a lot of fun. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, I gave the listeners some context into what you do, but I think this, this, you know, first question will give them a little bit more insight. So I always start with the same question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. So I'll, I'll let you take that away. 
Yeah, I mean, there's tons I could offer and there's there's also ones I could offer that could ultimately promote maybe what I do or my books or whatever. But the one actually that comes to mind truthfully is the day I was asked to do a best man speech. And you may have heard this story before, but I, uh, you know, for two and a half minutes, I was super excited. And then um, I went to this place of absolute dread because the last place on earth Philip McKernan wanted to be was in the public domain. And best man speeches in Ireland are very central to the whole wedding experience. It's a big part of the day. Um, so I even thought about breaking my own leg so I didn't have to do it. So long story short, I arrive at this venue. And of course, lo and behold, Connor, would you believe there's a goddamn stage because it's an old, old theater. And before that, I decided I was going to try and be funny. Then I was going to try to be super intellectual and try to be smarter than I was. And I oscillated all these masks. And I finally said, screw it. You know what? I'm just going to speak from my heart as best I can. It wasn't a strategy. It just, I was so exhausted with all the confusion. And I shared my truth as it relates to the bride and groom. And at the end, I said, anyway, to the bride and groom, the toast. And I looked around and the whole room gave a standing ovation. And I looked and I said, wow, that's so cool. And they're all looking at me, not the bride and groom. And people were crying and it was a bit of carnage. And I turned around and said, shit, I just screwed up the wedding. But, but the bigger point was when I came off the stage, a man who I'd never met in my life before. He was obviously on the bride's side. I had never met since with tears rolling down his face. And men don't hug in Ireland. Or if they do, they do it when they're drunk. And then afterwards, they pretend it never happened. He walked up with tears rolling down his face, hugged me. And as we parted the embrace, he said, if I ever get married, will you be my best man? To which I said, go F yourself, basically, is what you say in Ireland if it, in a loving way. And he said, you've got a gift. And the reason I share that story is not to say I have a gift because that's not for me to self-identify, but really to illustrate one simple point. And that is sometimes it's strangers that can see something in us that we either cannot see or we simply do not want to see in ourselves. And that man changed the trajectory of my life. I'd love to say I acted immediately, but it was maybe a couple of years after. But he set a seed. I don't know who he, who he is, who he was. I could never track him down. And I tried but that man probably has no idea what he unleashed in the world. Mm, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I would love for you to give a, a little bit more context around just this idea of masks. You know, you, you talk about uh, being concerned about wearing some of these masks or, you know, get, preparing for a talk. And I think usually in those types of settings, that's when we usually wear really thick masks, right? Because we want to impress people. So can you give a little bit more context into what you actually mean by that? And then maybe some of the masks that you felt like you were dealing with in your life? Yeah, I think from a very early age, I used to say older, but I actually believe around the, the age of 10, we start picking masks up off the, the streets and the playgrounds of life and, and literally playgrounds, metaphorically, are not in, in school and begin to be something we're not in order to fit in, whether it's smoking a cigarette, whether it's using, using an F-bomb, whether it's teasing somebody, whether it's bullying somebody, whether it's just trying to be something you're not in order to be in the cool gang. And we do it to fit in and there's nothing wrong with it. I, I don't think we should judge it. I just think we should be aware of it. I think when judgment is present, there's no growth. So be curious about it. And we, we, we get into this habit and society seems to reward us in many ways for not being ourselves, for following societal pressures, following in our footsteps of our parents, following, you know, expectations, et cetera. So then before we know it, we're, we're, we're doing this on a consistent basis. And then we, we come to work in the working environment, a corporate setting, our own business, and we're struggling to identify who we are. And in that space, when we're wearing all these masks, we're acting in ways that we, we are authentic. We're doing things that don't serve us. 
and we're looking and putting other people on pedestals and we're seeing value in their story and not necessarily in our own. So I carry masks this day. I think I always will. My goal in my life is to remove as many of them as possible before I die. And that to me, because in the end of the day, I, I heard a stunning story recently from a man who said, uh, the story was this gentleman went to see his dad in, in hospital. He was dying. And the doctor comes out and he says, this is where it all happens. And the guy looks at him and says, what do you mean? He goes, this is where you have the conversation you should have had 20 years ago. In other words, literally when we're dying, and I know that's an area that you're intrigued by, literally when we're dying, that's when we seem to lose every mask and nothing but the essence of who we are is left in that moment. I want to awaken people to that possibility sooner in the journey, not waiting until their deathbed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because I think, you know, as, as men and, and, and women, there's a lot of cultural and societal norms and expectations and pressures that get put on people. And, you know, that really shapes their identity and shapes the mass that they end up taking on. So what are some of the things that you see contributing to that? Like, you know, besides the sort of obvious family pressures to like go get a very certain degree and become a very specific person, what are some of the things that you see people really falling under the guise of? Yeah, I mean, you know, societal pressure is never more evident, um, you know, now that Facebook and Twitter and social media is, is, is so prevalent and present the way it is. I think one of the areas it creates an actual pain point in a lot of people is they don't give themselves permission to do what they want to do in this earth. For example, I literally had a conversation yesterday about one of the most gifted videographers I've ever encountered, incredibly gifted, and a photographer. And I don't know which is better, his photography or his videography. And the challenge is that people around him are going, wow, look at how good you are. And they're telling him how amazing he is and that he is so lucky to have found his passion and that he is destined for great things, which sounds like belief, but it could also be pressure. That can all be also be negative pressure. His truth is that his dream is to become a professional online gamer. Hmm. And he's afraid to say it because he feels judged by society and ashamed of this secret truth that he has. But since he was a young kid and he's found not just the excitement of playing the game, but he finds this incredible underworld of, of, of social interaction. I don't know much about the space, so I'm, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, but he speaks about it with such love. And he said yesterday, we were talking about doing a project and he said, I'm sorry, I'm letting you down. And I said, why? Because you're not going to video this stuff. And he goes, yeah. And I know I told you I would. I said, you would only be letting me down, my friend, if you kept dishonoring who you are as a person. If this is your truth, keep saying it. But I did say to him also that while society might be judging you for your, for your dreams, aspirations, goals, whatever, you're also allowing it. It's up to you to stand up and be unapologetic in the thing that you want to do and educate them that it's okay to do something outside of the norm to be fulfilled in this world. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And one of the things that I've noticed just through my own work and through the work that, that I've seen you do over the last however many years is, is that there are, there are certain ways that we can start to break free from some of these things and actually start to, you know, as you've said, shed some of these masks, like the, maybe not the end goal of ridding ourselves of them entirely. I'm always aware of the person that's like, oh, I don't have an ego. You know, it yeah. seems like a bit of spiritual bypassing. It's like, yeah, yeah, you do. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely you do. But what are some of the experiences that you've seen help this process along? Because I think that's what people are really ultimately looking for, right? Is that change, that growth, how to let go of, of, of having those pressures um, 
actually take over their life and really run their life. So where do we start? What experiences actually work? Well, there's three things that come to mind. Um, and I always, when I say that, then I start getting into the first and I forget the next two. So bear with me <laughs> uh, because I don't have notes. I'm just, this, this is happening in real time and we didn't practice this beforehand. So uh, first of all is exactly what you said. Uh, I did a podcast about a year ago and God love this poor woman who had done a lot of research on me and she had every talk I'd ever done. And her first question, she says, I've got to ask you this. How did you become so authentic? And my answer was, with respect, you're making an assumption I am. I'm more authentic than I used to be, but I'm not even close to where I want to be. And, I, and that still remains the same to this day. So I think anyone who doesn't think they have masks or believes that they're down to the last one or two, you've gone from a place of awareness to complacency. And with respect, you're completely lost or you're bullshitting yourself or whatever. Or somebody told you a lie. Someone told you you were good looking as a kid, when maybe you weren't. Or someone's told you you're super aware when maybe you're not as aware as you think you are. I'm obviously joking about the first one. But so just, be, just assume the masks are there. And the more you assume that, that actually strengthens you. It doesn't undermine you. That is the number one thing. The second thing is to have the courage to share your greatest secrets, your greatest pains with everybody all of the time, not just selectively. And that's the third piece. The third piece is I find people who go, oh, no, I'm super authentic in work. Or, I'm super authentic with my boyfriend. Or, I'm super authentic with my girlfriend. But you know, my parents, it's a little bit different. I can't because they're older and everything else. That's just a story you're telling yourself. And I believe that when you're picking your battles in terms of authenticity, vulnerability, you're putting masks on, you're taking them off, you're putting them on when you drive into the driveway, you're taking them off when you go into work. That's confusing. It's exhausting and it creates uncertainty. So those three things I would believe are at least a great starting point in understanding who you are, where you wear masks. And also naming those masks. Like, don't just say, oh, one is trying to fit in. Why are you desperately trying to fit in? Where in your life did you not? Track it back, begin to understand. You didn't wear masks when you were born. You started putting them on. Why? Mm -hmm. Why did you put them on? Why does it show up today? Why do you continue to hold these things? And um, a lot of masks are there to fit in, but a lot of masks are there to protect ourselves. Tucker Max is a I'm sure you know Tucker. Tucker gets a lot of judgment from a lot of people. I have gotten to know Tucker. I think he's a really incredible guy. I know Tucker won't mind me saying this. My perspective, he may disagree, is his mask is, call me, you know, I'm an asshole. And he's almost branded himself like that. Call me an asshole, judge me, hate me. That's okay. Don't you dare like me. and Don't even think about falling in love with me. And if you understand Tucker's story, you realize why he wears the mask to the extent in which he does. It's a protective thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I think you, you're really um, speaking a lot of truth. One of the, one of the things that, that stood out was, you know, point number one, it, it sounds like such a old school piece of wisdom, you know, it reminded me of the Tao, right? The first line of the Tao is the Tao. It's called the Tao. It's not the Tao, right? So the idea is that as soon as we say that we have you know, removed all our masks, we're, we're missing something, we're missing the point. It's, it's like somebody, Connor, coming to me and saying, hey, my wife sent me to you and, and do your stuff, do your magic. Um, she says I drink too much. And I go, well, is she the only one? Well, my friends think I drink too much. So you're an alcoholic. No, 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 no. I, I could give up alcohol like that. I don't, but I, I could say, anyway, do your stuff, do your voodoo stuff to, you know, fix me. And I go, there's nothing to fix, number one, because you're not broken. But number two is there's nothing to change because you haven't owned it yourself. And it's yeah. so simple. And yet it's the missing link for so many people. Let's assume I'm not as happy as I think I am. Make me happier. 
in your book, make me happy in your podcast, make me happy in your programs, your work. It's not possible because what they have is they've just basically given themselves an out. If I don't like what I hear, I'm not committing 100% and they're gone the other way and therefore they never fully learn. Yeah. I mean, where, so where does commitment fit into this? Because I feel like, you know, we're, we're kind of in a roundabout way. We're talking about things like purpose and mindset and, uh, you know, relationships and, you know, our, our own psyche, but, but where does commitment fit into this? Because one of the biggest things that I see, especially with a lot of modern day, you know, a lot of people now in 2018, they're struggling with overcommitment. You know, they have so many commitments going on. So how does commitment to self-reflection, self-growth actually fit into the equation in your perspective? In terms of time commitment, emotional, mental, or all of the above? All of the above, but mostly, actually mostly emotional commitment. Because I feel like that's the one that, that people are often terrified okay, of. Okay, I think that's a brilliant question. And it's a question I've never been asked before. Um, I, I, what comes up for me is this, and I'm not sure if this is going to make sense, but is I know lots of people are saying I'm an avid learner Hmm. and you know, I read a book a week or whatever it is and they go, that's my commitment. And my concern about those people is they can cite every book imaginable. They can cite the quotes. They can tell you intellectually what a book represents and everything else, but they haven't given it the time to percolate and land emotionally. Hmm. And I think one of the reasons for that is that they're not in touch with the cost of not as being emotionally in touch with, for example, who they are, and therefore allowing that guard down, allowing people to see them and feel them and connect with them emotionally. And there's a lot of loneliness in the world as a result of this. There's a tremendous amount of men. I know that's that's a big focus of yours. There's a lot of very lonely people. You can have 5,000 Twitter followers, you know, 60,000 people following you on Facebook or whatever it is. You can work in an organization that you've either built or you're part of with 40 people in your main office and offices around the world that you visit and go to bed at night with or without somebody and be lonely. So I feel that commitment to me is very heady. Commitment is very much about I'm committed to six days a week. I'm committed to going to the gym 20 minutes a day. You can push yourself to do it, but do you really want to do it? So in, in relation to health and fitness, I can push myself to go to the gym seven days a week. But where I've transitioned, I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I'm fit. Like I'm fit. I'm 45 years old. I've never been fitter. But now the first thing that goes in my bag when I go on a trip is either bands or sneakers or my health stuff. I've gone from having to and pushing myself to wanting to. And it's, a, it, it's gone from intellectual to emotional change, if that makes any mm. sense. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's where I was wanting to direct it in the first place because, you know, I see just having worked with so many guys that, that are in their head, you know, that are analytical, that are rational, that, that have a lot of, you know, analysis paralysis going on, they can be very committed from an intellectual level like you're talking about, but the, the emotional piece, the heart piece is, is the important piece. Now, yes. you talk a lot about intuition. It almost seems like part of the work that I have observed you doing over the years is actually helping people sort of level down to level up. That's the way I want to put it, right? So it's like dropping into the heart, dropping into the gut and the intuition in order to help them expand and, and grow. And so I actually want to touch on the intuition and, and maybe have a little bit of an understanding from your perspective, how that has evolved for you over the years, because you've been talking about it now for quite a while. So how do you perceive the intuition now and how has that evolved for you over the years? 
Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me is I was born deeply intuitive. Um, I had a lot of intuition as a kid. And because of all the masks, ironically, it's, it's where mm. we go with this conversation. It's building almost on the previous conversation where for every mask I put on, it almost subdued or suppressed or pushed down or pushed away the intuition. And, you know, we, we often talk about these moments of madness. Oh, this moment of madness. And I thought about traveling the world for a year. This moment of madness where I thought about setting up a podcast, but I've never done that. Those moments of madness, which sounds judgmental, are often moments of genius, moments of truth, moments of uh, intuition, our body, our mind, the universe telling us this is our true north. This is where we should go. Um, for me, if I had to ex- ex- try to explain intuition, uh, which is somewhat intangible, it's like, you know, the mind has thoughts, the soul has feelings. And I, I, I present this under the concept of soul set as opposed to mindset. And soul set used to be something where people would kind of like almost snigger at it, you know, think, oh, it's woo-woo, it's fluffy. I have a lot of business owners now that all they want to focus on is soul set. All they want to focus on is intuition. And how can I make better decisions that are less intellectual and initially are, are kind of inspired by intuition? And I literally have clients citing major life decisions, major business deals, acquisition, acquisitions within their business, selling their business based on intuition as opposed to the intellect. But the starting point is this. People say, how do I become more intuitive? How, do you, how can you train me to become more intuitive? It's almost like they're, they're, they're speaking about it as if it's something they never had. Mm. I look at it the opposite way around. You have it in abundance. You are born with it. It is a natural gift that all of us have, not a talent, a gift. And the job is to ask yourself the right questions of why you have not trusted it, why you have suppressed it, and why you do not listen to it, and what gets in the way of it. And you live in your head for a reason. You live in your head because you're emotionally trying to protect yourself, or you're just super busy, or a combination of both. Why? And when you understand that, it starts to fall away and you start to become naturally more intuitive. I don't have a 10-step system to be more intuitive. Uh, And and I know you don't expect (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. I mean, think about it. A 10-step system to be more intuitive sounds very weird for me. Um, So yeah, that's, that's, that's what I, what's coming up for me right now. No, I, I love it. I love it. And, and, you know, I think Philip, like one of the reasons why I've always respected your work is because it, I think it resonates with a lot of people and you're not, you're not trying to sell some systematic approach to this, you know, and I think that that's, that's very different. There's a lot of people out there that are sort of like, oh, here's the, you know, here is the 10 step, how to feel more in, intuitive and use that to make better business decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this is sort of a training, you know, I call a lot of, I think the future of therapy is training and, and being able to bring some of these pieces forward. One of the things that stood out for me is this concept you touched on talent versus gift. And you, you very clearly stopped there and, and made the distinction between the two. How come? For what's the difference for you between something like a talent and a gift? Well, many of us are walking this earth, executing our talent on a daily basis, but never honoring our gifts. And most people I meet that eventually, eventually make are successful financially or societally, economically, they eventually run out of steam. And when they feel that niggling, this is not enough, what they do is they just get busy and create another business, sell that business, you know, double down on the next business. But what's happening is on a very deep spiritual level, their body, the universe, whatever is saying, listen, buddy, this is just talent. You're really good at writing code. You're really good at building real estate businesses. You're really good at you know, building a team of remote people to build software, whatever it happens to be. But 
your real gift is your ability to connect emotionally with yourself, with other people and inspire other people, whatever that happens to be. It tends to be something in the emotion, the emotional realm. So I, again, I worked with two business owners yesterday and just checking in to make sure I don't drop something that gives them away. And they're, they're get they're tired of their business. They've had major success. They're tired. They're wondering what's going on. And they think it's just simply a pivot in terms of how they execute their business or moving into a new area. And what it, what uncovered yesterday was they're not, they don't have a mission that's bigger than themselves. They don't have fulfillment and impact built into it. They're cutting checks, but it's not enough. It's just not enough. They've got to get out into the world and literally feel and see the impact they can make in another human being's eyes. Otherwise, no matter what they succeed on, or what they achieve on paper, it'll feel successful, but they won't be satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things that I feel like you're touching on inadvertently is this concept of sort of like an identity death, you know, that we have parts of our parts of ourself and parts of our identity that, that start to not serve us any longer. Right. And, and maybe that's just the label of the mask that's, that's, that's being presented. But I, w- I would love to touch on that because I've seen a lot of people, clients that I've worked with, friends, family members, myself, you know, in the past and even in the, like, the past year, where that part of their identity starts to shift, right? It starts to fall away. And it can be incredibly taxing and challenging, right? Especially if somebody, you know, has worked in, in finance for a decade or two and suddenly they are trying to move past that. They're trying to find a new version of themselves because they know yeah. that that's their talent, but not their gift. So how do we start to let go of that old part of our identity that isn't serving us anymore? How do we start to move through that? Brilliant question. Most people ask that question way too late. Mm, mm-hmm. And here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to Here's my prediction. Here's my promise. And I, and, and I hope I'm wrong, but I'm not. And I experience this myself and I experience this personally and professionally every day. Your identity is going to either fall away from you using your terms or it's going to be ripped out of your hands. Okay. Because that's not who you are. It's not who you're meant to be. And the universe is going to conspire to support you, to leave clues. Life leaves clues. If you're not too busy and you don't have your head down, if you're willing to see them, they're already there. And what we're here to do in this earth, let's call it purpose, um, whatever you want to call that, that, that term is, is, is right under your nose. It's something that's almost too obvious. And it's something that you're so naturally gifted at that you don't even see a value in it. When was the last time, Connor, you heard somebody saying, I'm a, I'm a great breather. I'm an amazing breather. Nobody, pretty much, with the exception of maybe an amazing yoga teacher or whatever, is because we do it naturally. And the same thing applies. We don't put a value typically on the things we do naturally. So my, my feeling and my prediction is that your, your identity is going to fall away regardless or it's going to be ripped out of your hands or ripped off your face by the universe in a dramatic way with the loss of a business, a depression, a death of a family, a shake in the economy, you've been kicked out of your job, your business failing, whatever it happens. And then you are going to spiral into a darkness uh, and an abyss that is not endless and, and doesn't have hope. It does, but it's going to be so much more difficult for you to get back on track because you've dishonored yourself for so long. The challenge is not what do I do then? That, that, is, that is a reactive place. If you want to be proactive is you look at it right now and you look at how attached you are to your business, to your role, to your relationship. Most couples have a dysfunctional relationship to begin with, even though they might be blissfully happy. They over-rely on each other. They need that other person to make them happy. 
fundamental mistake. We say things jokingly, semi-jokingly, flippantly like, oh, she's my better half. Somebody said to me for the first time and last time a year ago, oh, Pauline's definitely your better half. And I said, with respect, I completely disagree. Because if you think about that, let's just say Pauline and myself, you know, we break up. Not just do I lose half of who I am, I lose my better half and I'm left with the shit. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm being silly to make a point. We put, I, my wife's amazing and I love her to pieces and she's an incredible support. But I had to let her go. And two years ago, I'll never forget the day, Connor, you've met Pauline in the house, the, 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 you know, if not more times. And I literally sat down and I said, Pauline, I've really thought this long and hard. I've worked with this emotionally. It's time. I need to let you go. And she burst into tears and said, you're divorcing me? I said, no, I'm just letting you go. I'm not here to make you happy. Mm. I'm here to journey this earth with you. And if, if by being with you makes you happier, that is amazing. But I'm not here to make it happen. I'm telling you, Connor, it might sound weird and fluffy and intangible. Game changer. I would do the same with your career. I play a little game with clients and I say, right, you're not allowed to do what you do. You've got to do something completely different. And depending how defensive somebody is around that question tells me and gives me an insight of how attached they are to being in finance, to being an entrepreneur, to being this, to being that. And people will go, no, but I do do what I do. I would do exactly what I do already. And I go, well, now red flags are going off all over. (laughs) You're not allowed to be a priest. You're not allowed to be a stockbroker. You're not allowed to be a mother. Just play the goddamn game. Yeah. And what would you do? And it's incredible when people give them freedom, sells freedom. I've had people in workshops look at other people that they know going, are you shitting me? You do that? And it's almost never something stupid or silly. And it's often something that's there from childhood, something that lies below the surface, something they're ashamed of. One guy said to me, he runs a multi-million dollar business in Canada, makes tons of money, not happy, surprise, surprise. Doesn't, just because he's making money doesn't mean he's not happy. And I posed this question. He said, I'd, uh, I'd open up a cheese shop. I'd open up a cheese manufacturing shop. He didn't just know the type of cheese. He didn't know, just know the blends. What blends? I'm not sure if that's even accurate for cheese, but bear with me. I'm not a cheese guy. And, but he knew exactly the location. He almost, I think if I pushed him, he even knew the goddamn building. Hmm. Now, where did that come from? That was within him already. All he did was create the environment and the question for that to come up. And then we don't have to act on it. We just have to play with it, be curious without this need to think that you have to execute on it. And something people say to me sometimes, if I say to them, oh, you're working 60 hours a week doing something you don't want to do. Have you thought of something different? They do this. They go, well, I'm not going to lie on a, on, a, on a launcher every day of the week. And I go, you've just gone from one extreme to the other. So you essentially don't have to answer the question. I'm just asking you to be curious about what is out there in the world. Ask those questions now so you don't regret them in the future is my, is my view. Yeah, I, I think it, you know what that brings up. Well, first off, I love the I love the idea of, you know, your better half and actually looking at that perspective. I talk with a lot of guys around, you know, the the phrase, the saying, happy wife, happy life. It's like, man, so like your life can't be good unless your wife is happy. Like that that's what your whole life's happiness is dependent on. That is a shit ton of pressure on her. Like that is so much pressure on your partner. It's ridiculous because then they always have to be happy for you to be in a good place in life. Now, if there's such thing as a stupid statements, okay, (laughs) that is the stupidest statement that any human being has ever created on this earth. It is fundamentally and utterly flawed. Yeah. I know so many men that are trying to keep their wives happy and I'm not saying don't respect your wife and, and, and create joy and do things for her and create experiences. That's not what I'm talking about. 
but a happy wife. Oh, don't get me started on that one, please. <laughs> don't get me going on that I, one. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I like. I feel like half of the work that I do is just like, you know, deconstructing that. Anyway, the one thing, the one thing that this brought up for me when when you sort of brought this to where you brought this conversation before was the amount of pressure that I think people actually feel. Because I, I actually believe that a lot of people are more self-aware than they give themselves credit for. And they usually know when they're unhappy, that they don't want to be in their job, that they don't want to be in that career anymore. And usually, at least in my experience, and maybe this is true for you too, in my experience, by the time that they come to me, they, they are already so far down the road that they know they want to leave, they're not happy, or they're through that transition. But they put an immense amount of pressure on what's next. So how do people bridge the gap once they start to identify where they're at now and, and what's next for them? Because it seems like they put a huge amount of pressure on the future. Oh, you mean you people coming to you saying, hey, I'm unhappy and I need to leave my job. Help me find out my, my purpose, my life's purpose by tomorrow morning at 12 noon. I mean, that or that or some of the people that I've that I've observed that make the transition that are in transition. Like we have one of the you know, we've got this huge community of, of guys that we run on Facebook. And one of the guys was talking about how he's left his career in finance and he's moving into a different space, right? But he's put so much pressure on what the next space is that he's been unable to take action. And so I see a lot of people putting pressure on the future. So how does that come about and how do, how do people actually start to like deal with that? Yeah, I was being actually super sarcastic a few minutes ago, ah. but you just kept going on. <laughs> I my, just kept going. My, my sarcasm is not very good. So uh, yeah, I mean, you and I, come across very similar situations like that. And there's two parts to this. Um, one is the pressure that somebody's putting themselves under even when they make a transition. Um, the other one is people who are stagnant before they transition and they use either the reason or the rationale or the excuse of, I don't know what's next. So therefore I'm just going to continue to do what I do. This, you know, so basically it's like saying, I, I'm not in love with this girl. I know it's a dysfunctional relationship. I know it's not very good for either me or us or both of it or her or whatever. But you know what? I'm going to stay in it until I meet the right girl. It is fundamentally flawed because what you're doing is that energy, that emotional energy and, and, and the essence of who you are can't fully show up. And if you think about life, it's almost when we let go. I mean, I know if you've been in this situation, I certainly have. I remember breaking up with a girl after five years and I just said, I don't want to see another woman. I don't want to date another woman for at least 12 months. And it was almost like I was walking through the earth. You know, people are listening to this. I'm putting blinkers on with my hands. I didn't want, I just didn't want one to meet somebody else. And of course, lo and behold, I go to South America and I meet an Irish girl called Pauline, who's now my wife. So it's almost when we're on it, we're unattached to the need to find out what's next is the very time it starts to show up. And we're under so much pressure. So the first thing is, the person who's sitting there, they know they're not happy. They're beginning to believe they're not content and they're not sure what's next. So they do nothing. Number one is act on what you know, as opposed to what you do not. I may not know what my purpose is. I may not know what I want to do for the next 20 years. I may not know what I want to do when I grow up, but I know for certain I hate this job. I know for certain I dislike this company. I know for certain I don't like where I live. Act on what you know, as opposed to what you do not know. If you, and I use the analogy of Vegas, if you are living in Vegas and you don't like Vegas, move. And somebody go to me, but Philip, I don't know where to move to. I go anywhere, anywhere on earth. But what happens if I get to Philadelphia and I don't like it? Move again. 
but what if I get to Afghanistan and I'm living in a cave and I don't like it? Move again. And in the absence of clarity, take some type of action. And the only outcome is additional clarity. It may not go well, but it may go super right. And it's that fear of making one wrong move paralyzes people. And they're afraid of failure, yet they're fucking failing themselves every single day by staying somewhere that doesn't align and doesn't honor their truth. And Connor, I think the best way I can describe this, I have a lady on the phone, let's call her Mary, and let's call the the company Google. Almost identical, like big, big um, social company, cool to work with, et cetera. And she said to me something so dangerous. She said, I'm so comfortable where I am. Mm. I'm making great money working for a cool company. I'm doing some really innovative stuff. I know I'm not fully happy, but I'm really comfortable. And I found myself looking in her eyes on a Zoom call and going, you don't look very comfortable to me. And I just shut my mouth and the tears came. We tell ourselves these incredibly dangerous stories. For example, I'm not making a transition because my kids are in private school. I'm doing this for my kids. That's, a, that's, that's either bullshit or here's, here's my ask, is go tell your kids. Tell them what? Hey, Johnny and hey, Sarah, just so you know, your dad's miserable. And the reason he stays in his miserable job, making great money, but being miserable. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I did this my whole life, Connor. Almost my entire life, I did work I didn't want to do. So I know the pain of it. I just want you to know that I stay there. And the reason I tell my friends I'm staying and myself is because of you. Because I have never met children who many years later look back and say, I wish my dad stayed in that shitty day job. I wish my mother went to a job or opened up a business she didn't like. I wish my parents worked harder. Not one child has ever said that about their parents that I've ever met. So we use, we tell ourselves these stories of why we shouldn't change. And we're lying to ourselves. We're dishonoring ourselves. And the catastrophic effect of this is that we don't get to show up in the world in a way that inspires other people. Whether you live in a condo in Vancouver and you only go out once a week for a newspaper, statistically it's been proven you have direct influence over 258 other human beings by just being a normal person walking this earth. By having the courage to make a change, even in the absence of the clarity of what's next, you become an inspiration daily for the people around you. That's my challenge to you. Stop making it about you. Make a change. And if you can't do it for you, do it for your kids. Do it for your community. Do it for your family. Do it for your friend who's in the same position. And through your inspiration, he will make a change as well because he sees you go first. That's my ask for you. And I've completely lost the second part of this question because I just got a little bit passionate here. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's perfect. That's perfect. I love it. It's just living in the moment. No, I, I think what you're, what you're touching on is so powerful because people do put so much pressure on the next step to be the sort of like penultimate, ultimate equation, you know, ultimate solution. I call it one-itis, right? It's just like, this has to be the one. We do that, we do that to partners too. It's like this person, I need to find the one. Out of 7.4 billion people, got to find the one and this next job and this next move and the, the whole thing. So I think you, you really touched on it. And one of the things, you know, I want to kind of segue a little bit because I think that this is, this is a very important, it actually ties into what we're talking about. But one of the things that I've seen to be a, a good catalyst to create this type of shift and change is, is understanding death in a different way. Is, is understanding and getting very real with, uh, with our personal timelines. And so I, I'm curious, you know, because you have, I've, I've spoken at your event, you've got this event called One Last Talk, and it's very powerful. And, and I'm curious how this came about for you. Why One Last Talk? Why is death such a motivator for people to 
make changes to create shifts. Screw you. Um, <laughs> I know it's a bit, I know it's just, it's just a small, yeah, small, small Wednesday afternoon question. <laughs> we just got what, 60 seconds. We'll wrap this one up. Uh, I can just feel a surge of emotion coming through my body. So uh, this, this speaks really deeply to me. I think it's a few things. I, I think we don't, I don't like the word urgency, but I think some of us are not urgent enough. And we think we have 20 years to figure this shit out. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the patience to allow 20 years to unfold for us to finally find out the real essence of who we are and our greatest work is yet to come and so on and so forth. At the same time, I think too many of us are sitting around waiting for permission to, to step out and make a change in this world. I personally have experienced death uh, very close, my own personal mortality, really super close twice. And I, I'd almost wish everyone to almost die at least once. Um, but then again, I wouldn't wish it if that makes any sense for obvious reasons. Um, so I think I've had, I wouldn't say the luxury, the unfortunate, uh, reality, but also the fortune of actually coming really super close to death, having to be brought back, you know, given, you know, kind of, uh, resuscitation on, on the side of a river, being almost killed by an elephant in, in Nigeria. I won't get into the details, but, um, and I think it does awaken you differently. Um, I, you know, I'm going to write, I was going to write a book, Con. I was going to write a book, I, I say, because I'm going to give the whole premise of the book to you right now. And therefore the book doesn't need to be really written. And it's called Wake Up Call. And the whole premise of it is, is to interview people and, and to share their life and their existence before their wake up call. What was their wake up call, whether depression, loss of a family member, near death experience, cancer, et cetera. And then look at what they how they pivoted if they did sometimes people have such low self-esteem even after a wake-up call they still don't give themselves permission to do what they want to do but the basic premise of everyone i interviewed simply what they do is give themselves permission to do the thing they've always wanted to do that's it it is no more complex no more weird no more scientific that is it or they have found ways to at least experiment with it the other thing that comes to mind and this is very recent and very raw for me is I went to a project in India very recently, but in the last month and a half. And I believe if my numbers or my memory is correct, it's so ironic this because you and I hadn't, we hadn't planned this at all, is the last time I came back from this particular project was in 2015, I think. Hmm. I, I think this could be right. And I stood on your stage at Man Talks at the, the live event and Chris Biasudi was in the audience and he was sitting in the front seat and Chris knows me and my work. And he said, I felt literally pushed back in my chair with your talk. I have never seen you speak like that before, ever. He said, what happened? And I went to India. It wasn't just India. It was this particular project. And I got blown open. And I brought a group of entrepreneurs back there recently. And it went from 150 people in this project to 450. And when I went in, my heart started to pound. Because one of the things you can choose to do is in a male's case is choose to wash the men. And women can choose to wash the women. And almost no one ever, ever volunteers to do this. And I knew in my heart I needed to do this. And I washed 50 men with one, or one of the other volunteers that came with me. I don't know how yet, because I'm still processing it, but it has changed me at a very deep level that I can't even describe. And the best way I can attempt to describe it is that by, by addressing those 50 men who are either unable or unwilling to wash themselves, and in many cases, some of these people are very close to dying and passing on, it brings you face-to-face as close as you can get with your own mortality. Hmm. And, it, and, it, and it is one of the most beautiful, most vulnerable, most scary, all at the same time, places I've ever been. 
I'm not sure I'm asking your answering your question, but I think death is something that we should bring more into our consciousness. We should discuss more, not from a place of fear or negativity. But I think the reason that death is so fearful for many is that we don't give it a public place to talk about it in a beautiful spiritual way. And I'm not talking about what happens after you die. And I think one of the things that I, and I I say this with a lot of respect, whatever you believe, you believe. But there's too many people out there in very certain religions think they're coming back all over again. Now, if I come back as a budgie or I'm reincarnated as a slug or whatever, that's a bonus. I'm making the assumption that when I die, there's nothing. And I tell you what that does for me. What that does is it doesn't diminish my hope or my dreams. What it does is it accelerates them. So I would encourage everybody to say, this is it. You don't get to come back for a second time around, even if that's what you want to be the truth. So there's a a number of random things, Connor, hopefully I've answered or attempted to answer your question in there. No, yeah. I mean, I think you've given a a lot of context and it's interesting because I, you know, I've started this practice called Memento Mori and it's, it's an old, old practice of actually looking at your own death, at your own, it, it basically means imagining your death, right? Mori means death. And it's, it's something that goes back like 600 years and it's, it's radically changed the way that I view the world and, and move through this existence right now. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, you, you talked about a few different parts of, you know, not, not, not looking at it from a space of reincarnating, not looking at it from a space of, you know, after you leave this plane of existence, you're going to go somewhere far better because that's, that's another one that I hear, right? You're going to go somewhere better. So you don't have to worry about what you're doing here in this life, um, but you're still suffering in this life. So that's almost like purgatory. So that's counterintuitive as well. So where, where do, where do the everyday people actually start? Like how, how do we, how do we actually start to not face death, but embrace it in, in a way, you know, and, and utilize its, its wisdom or is there wisdom? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a number of things and one, I want to be fully transparent. I'm going to pivot into one last talk and, and, and I'm going to do it because I believe in it, not because I'm just about to try and sell, sell the book or whatever, but I will talk about that in a minute. But I think at a very, Another level, which is available to everybody, whether you buy books, read books or not, is spend time with some older people. And, and I don't think age equals wisdom. Okay. So I don't think just by hanging out with some older guy or girl who's, in, who's, a, who's a successful entrepreneur or an entrepreneur means they're going to have tremendous wisdom. They may have built a very successful business doing something they don't want to do for 50 years. Do I really want counsel and mentoring from them? Not necessarily, unless they're willing to share both sides of the coin, the pain and the joy, the upsides and the downsides, then there's tremendous uh, insights. But I think spend some time with, with older people. I think we avoid older, older people in society. I think as more and more and more, you know, in, in, in generally, there's a lot more older people being either placed, homed or hidden out of society's reach in these homes where we don't want to face them because they remind us of our death. And I think one of the most beautiful things, and I'd love to say, by the way, I was wise enough and aware enough to bring this into my life consciously. I wasn't. This just happened by accident to some extent. I was always around older people who were much closer to death than I was. And I watched, I got very close to them. I always had much older friends. And I think that that has given me not an edge or anything that just has given me an insight into what it's like to age and to have regret um, and to have joy and to have love and to have loss and to look at the fear that they have. And typically people who are dying with fear 
It's the fear of not dying. It's the fear of what they haven't done. It's the fear of looking back on the things that either they've done or they haven't done in this life. And that goes back to living in Vegas or being in a business that you don't want to be in or in a relationship that you don't want to be in. And just one other thing before I forget, in case I, I don't get a chance to say this, is you might think your challenge is X, but there's a 99.9% chance that Y is the solution to X. X is the byproduct of something else. So people come to me going, I want to find my purpose. But in actual fact, the purpose is the byproduct of other work that they need to do on themselves at a deeper level. And then there's one last talk, and that's why I created it. Is, is I don't believe there's a better mechanism, tool, process. I've never seen it to bring people through a process that as gently brings them to this question of if I was about to leave this earth, what would I say and who would I say it to? And for me not to say that, Connor would be, would be, would be dis, disrespecting what I believe at my core, which is one last talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ha- you know, having gone through the process and it's, and it's interesting because <clears throat> the guys that come and speak at Man Talks, it's, it's sort of a similar process. It's a, it's a little bit more condensed, and, but it's, it's a very similar process of having people experience what it would be like to, to, give, that, to give that kind of talk. So from your perspective, what does this allow people to shift? Like how do people see their lives differently? Because I'm just imagining like some of the people that are listening to this and they're like, okay, give my one last talk. Like, what does that mean? How do, how do we go about that? What, what's, you know, what's the ROI? Since I have a lot of analytical listeners <laughs> on this one, I thought I would just drop that in there. Well, I can tell you right now, if you're looking for the ROI on a one last talk before you do it, we're never going to convince you. And I can yeah. try and I can try and I can try, but I can, I can tell you this, you use Tucker Max as an example. He went through the process and I think through his own admission and mine is, is, is he thought it would be not a breeze through it, but he thought it would be, he wouldn't learn anything about himself. He didn't already know. It completely blew him open mm. and really made a fundamental shift in his relationship and his ability as a leader and as a man. I have another lady who literally had physically white spots on her body for years and not one dermatologist, not one blood test, nothing showed up. And she did her one last talk, shared her truth, not her story, her truth with the world, truth that she never imagined she would share publicly in her life. And the white spots have literally disappeared. So we have had people say it's had an emotional impact. Uh, people have had a huge physical, you know, um, a sense of letting go peace of mind, a sense of purpose, understanding. So for example, there's a gentleman who owns a uh, sports team and he read the book and he just said to me uh, two things. Number one is for the first time ever, I realized why I do what I do. I created a sports team and a community because I was lonely as a kid. The story I told myself up to now was I created a, you know, this team because I love this sport and I love hanging out with people. Now I know why I do this. So number one, so that really equips him with a greater mission. Number two is he was heading to Memphis or not Memphis, doesn't matter where it was, Minnesota or somewhere to do a keynote speech. And through the One Last Talk book and going through the exercises, he decided to let go and share a deeper part of his truth with the world on stage. And he said he never got it. He's never been received in public the way he was received and accepted that day. So it will open you. It will allow you to understand who you are as a person at a greater level. It will give you insights, either the beginning or continuation of the journey about finding purpose, if that's the term you use. But the bigger picture is it's not about you. It's not actually for you. It's about you, but it's not for you. And if you're entering one last talk saying it's all about my ROI, what I get out of it with respect, don't go near the book. Don't go near the concept because it's not going to be a fit or it might convince you along the way. You're, talk your truth 
is set out into the world to free other people from suffering and in turn yourself. So when somebody in Yellowknife who cannot afford to get on a plane and go to Vancouver or New York to an event, here's a talk from somebody about something that they themselves experienced. Two things or three things happen. One is they say, wow, I'm not alone. Number two, they start to begin to realize that maybe if that person's story has value to me, maybe my story has value to humanity. And number three is what happens if I share my story to at least one other human being? Can I continue the ripple effect? So your one last talk is about you, but it's not for you. It's a gift to the world. Mm, Yeah, I I love that. I love that. I feel like that's just that phrase is so relevant to so many pieces, you know, even your purpose, you you touched on purpose there. It's like, yeah, so, so is your purpose, right? And and Uh, and here's the thing is like, you know, your one last talk today could be, could be this deep. I'm just going, going from the top of my head to my eyes. You do it again in six or 12 months later, guaranteed everyone will go deeper. And yeah. I now char- have my hand on my, on my neck and so on and so forth. So it's not just a one-off thing. We recommend people do it at least one, once a year to rewrite it or relook it or go to the exercises and guaranteed everyone that has ever done it or will do it would always go deeper the second time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love the concept because I think, you know, a friend of mine um, spent some time with elderly people about a, he spent about a month working i can't remember what the name is but it's it's elderly people that are just about to pass away i can't remember what the name of the compound is but yeah. um he spent about a month in that space and he said it was one of the most transformative things that he'd ever done you know s- sitting with people who have days hours to live you know holding people's hands while they while they passed away and he said it just fundamentally shifted the way he looks at the world and I think there is something, there's so much merit to being able to not only see, see that part of life, see that part, see death out in the world, but also to be able to see our own end and to be able to allow ourselves to start to bring some of those pieces into the world today. So, so um, obviously you've got the talk, uh, you've got the event coming up in Vancouver, I think on November 20th, you said? That's correct. Yep. And then you've got, you got the book, which I think, you know, we're going to have links to, we're going to have links to all this in the show notes, but the book is, is it meant, obviously you tell some stories, but is it, is it meant to guide the reader through doing this practice? Yeah, it was so interesting. We said I was creating a how-to book, uh, mm. which is so interesting when you think about me and my work. And, and I was like, it, we realized that it's not about it. It's about how to do it. It's why you should do it. So it became mm. very much a why-to book which is, is telling stories about the results, sharing some examples of talks themselves, but also ties it up by, okay, now if you're ready and you want to continue, this is exactly how you do it. And um, so, so the why and the how towards the end. So the challenge is, and the ask is, if anybody goes through the book, the ultimate ask is deliver your one last talk to at least one other human being, otherwise it has no effect at all. And I have mm-hmm. to share one thing very quickly, Connor. We had a panel of readers in advance of the release and one, two people hated the book and that's fine. But we couldn't even use their their feedback because their criticism wasn't even, there was no, uh, it wasn't constructive. It was just pure anger. And mm. one of the men decides, I'm so pissed off at this book and I'm so pissed off from a current and I think this is so full of crap. I'm going to go through all the exercise. I'm going to deliver my talk and I'm going to prove to myself and this guy that this is, this is bullshit. He did his <laughs> talk to his parents and it has completely transformed his relationship with his mom and dad. He's now our biggest fan, our biggest advocate. So I'm just sharing that with you because some people might be judging it right now. Read the book if you're, if you're drawn to it. If you're not, don't read it. Um, but, 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 but enter it with an open mind, but particularly an open heart. And, and, and you might be amazed at what you get. I love it. I love it. Well, before I let you off the hook, I have one last, one last question for the oh, one last talk, uh-oh. which is, 
what what would be a part of your one last talk? I actually did my one last talk. It's in the book, and that was very difficult. Mm. Um, a part of it was that it was actually contained the most humiliating day of my life uh, in school, um, and I won't get into it now because we genuinely don't have the time. And it finishes with the one and only teacher who believed in me. And when we released our documentary in Dublin and did a screening, um, I was sharing the story. And I'm sitting, I'm standing on this, on this, in this theater, in this cinema, uh, with all the lights on me. And I couldn't see, obviously, you could see all the dark out, you know, a couple of faces at the front. And I tell this story about this one teacher, Trevor Garrett, who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And the world didn't seem to believe in me. And lo and behold, I see this shadow get up and walk down the steps. And suddenly Trevor Garrett stands on the stage um, some 25, 30 years later and comes up and holds me and hugs me. Um, I burst into tears. He burst into tears. It was a complete mess. I was going to speak for 20 minutes. When he got off the stage, I said, right, let's just watch the film. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't yeah. stand here. Um, so it finishes with that. But that, that in essence is, is, is the pain and the joy all from the same source, if you like. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, that, that is, that is a, an incredible way to end. So listen, Philip, thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. For everybody that's listening to this, definitely uh, check out One Last Talk, the book. The show is in Vancouver on uh, November 20th. You can find the links to that in the show notes. Uh, you can go to Philip's website, which will also be in, in the notes, uh, philipmckernan.com. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating review. If you enjoyed this episode, if any of this resonated with you, just man it forward to one person. Share it with just one person or 10, whichever one, but definitely one person. Uh, And uh, don't forget to leave us the rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 